Reading today from the 18th chapter of Luke, first 14 verses. First parable is true greatness. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. The temptations to sin. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you to have a great millstone fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the hellfire. The parable of the lost sheep. Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, in heaven their angels continually see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones shall be lost. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, friends, I've heard it said that communication is the key to a healthy relationship. By the way, I'm going to have to be stuck behind the pulpit today. My microphone is not working for me today, so we'll see how this works. I don't know if I can stand still for that long, but I'm going to try. But I've heard it said that communication is the key to a healthy relationship, and I'm positive the same is true of our relationship with God. Uh, I'm convinced, in fact, that a healthy relationship with God uh, is, is the same thing as a committed and healthy prayer life. There's a few different types of prayers that we have outlined in Scripture. We have a prayer of faith, which is a prayer believing that God has already or will act. We have prayers of we have corporate prayer. We do that in church every Sunday. Our call to worship is corporate prayer. We recite the Lord's Prayer together. And we have other occasions throughout the worship and throughout different times of the year in which we engage in corporate prayer. We have supplication, which is when we ask God for something or ask God to do something on our behalf. We have uh, prayers of thanksgiving in which we give thanks to God for what he's already done or for what he's promised to do. We have prayers of consecration that specifically ask for the work of the Holy Spirit in some sort of physical sense, like in communion or baptism, or even uh, to consecrate somebody who has been called to some sort of ministry. Prayer of intercession is when you and I pray on behalf of someone else. Uh, These types of prayers are very complex, and and we, we could talk about them. We could spend weeks really talking about the types of prayers that we see in Scripture. But Jesus, when he talks about prayer, he kind of doesn't go that complicated. He kind of keeps things just a little bit simpler. And Jesus discussing prayer in the beginning of Luke, 
uh, he talks about uh, he talks about two different parables that we have in uh, in Luke chapter eighteen, um, two different parables that he gives as examples of what prayer is in a simpler sense, not what kinds of prayers there are, not how to pray even in this instance, but rather what prayer is and what it does. Jesus opens with the parable of the judge. Jesus says that the judge was not God-fearing, which is a way of saying he didn't believe in God or have faith. To me, that indicates that the judge was Roman. And, and the reason I think that is that if he was a member of the Sanhedrin or if he was a member of the, the, the Jewish uh, judiciary, he would have been a religious leader. And it would be easy enough to explain that Jesus was just saying he wasn't faithful, but the judge admits it himself, right? In the parable, the judge says in his own words, I do not fear God. So to me, that, that indicates that he's Roman, that he's a Roman judge, uh, somebody who doesn't have to believe in God in order to have their position. And the thing about Roman judges in civil cases is that they weren't quite as complicated as our cases today in America. In the United States, our, our judicial system is based on Rome's with a system of appeals uh, and defense always having the right to appeal. And so uh, in the Roman system, just in our system today, there are always higher courts until you get to the highest court whose decision is final. And in our, in our judicial system today, we do have mediators and arbitrators, individuals who, if both parties agree, have a legally binding decision, but it isn't quite a formal courtroom. Now, the difference is, in, in our society today, that mediator or arbitrator needs to be a, legally, a legal trained professional uh, who's certified by some sort of an organization. In Rome, they didn't have to be. As long as they were a male and a Roman citizen, they could serve as a judge. And that didn't just mean an elected judge. That might just mean in their community in a smaller sense. It really was a case of two, two, two litigants getting together saying, you know, we don't want to go through the complexity and cost of a Roman court, so will you judge our, uh, our disagreement for us? And if both parties agree, then whatever that judge decides is legally binding. So it isn't just what do you think, it's legally binding. Now, if that judge isn't sure, if that judge hears all the evidence and isn't quite sure, then that judge swears under oath in the Roman court that the evidence in the case is not clear, in which case the two parties, if they wish to continue, must go to a Roman court and be judged by an actual jurist, an actual legally trained technician uh, in the courts. Uh, so what happens in this parable is that this woman feels that she's been wronged and she goes to someone in her community. She probably doesn't have the money for a lawyer to go to a court anyway, so she goes to this mediator in her community. She argues her case, her defendant argues his, his or her case, and she asks the judge to rule, and for whatever reason, he doesn't rule. We get the impression that it might have been because he didn't want to rule against the widow but thought she was wrong, or maybe he wasn't sure and was just kind of, kind of <clears throat> sitting on his thumbs waiting to tell the courts that he couldn't decide. But for whatever reason, he chooses not to rule right away. Right away. <coughs> Roman law required a ruling to happen within a certain amount of time, but there was an amount of time. It depended different, you know, different years were different, uh, and, and laws changed just like they do in the United States. But, uh, but he had to rule within some amount of time, but he had some time. So Jesus says that the woman just constantly, constantly uh, pursues this judge and says, won't you rule on my behalf? Don't you realize the hardships that this is causing me? Now, Jesus still calls him the unjust judge, when he finally decides to give the woman what she's asking for, he rules in her favor, and presumably she's paid or given back whatever she thought was stolen from her, or whatever the case was. Jesus doesn't give us the details, only that she felt she had been wrong. And Jesus gives a very bizarre comparison to God. He said, you know, if a woman can berate a judge until he finally gives a ruling, don't you think God will listen to you if you, if you call on him day and night? Right? Can you imagine God up in heaven thinking, thanks, son, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted, yeah. 
But Jesus is putting it in human terms. Jesus is saying, look, if, if humans, flawed, sinful, broken, imperfect humans can be swayed to listen to you with enough force, don't you think God, who is not flawed, who is perfect, could indeed hear your prayers and would indeed respond to them as he said he would? Why would you think that, that you can sway a judge to listen to your case, but you couldn't sway God to hear yours? That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that if, that if you pray, if you pray unceasingly, if you pray day and night, then God is going to listen to your case. Then God is going to search for justice. Now, justice is a funny word, right? Justice is a funny word because it doesn't mean you get what you want. It means you get what's right. But justice is what God promises. <coughs> Next, Jesus continues. He talks about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Jesus loves Pharisees and tax collectors. I almost wonder if he just enjoyed taking off the Pharisees, knowing full well what was going to happen. He just enjoyed sticking it to them at every chance he could. So he tells the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector, and uh, Luke reminds us that that's because there was a Pharisee in the crowd, right? So Luke doesn't say there was a Pharisee crowd and. Luke says because there was a Pharisee in the crowd, Jesus said. Right? So Jesus knows who's in the audience. And he says a Pharisee goes into the temple. <coughs> And the Pharisee uh, prays, and he prays like this. He says, God, thank you for making me so good. Thank you that I'm not a sinner. Thank you that I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a thief. And then he gets a dig in, right? He says, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there, right? Now, I mean, Pharisees were really good at kicking people out of church, right? But we get the impression that in this particular temple, probably the, the temple in Judea, in Jerusalem, uh, he didn't have the authority to kick this guy out, so he had to deal with the fact that he was praying next to an undesirable. So he gets that little dig in to make sure he feels uncomfortable. What the Pharisee was really saying was, excuse me, sir, you're sitting in my pew, or I noticed that you didn't uh, put enough money in the offering plate. The Pharisee was making this person uncomfortable in a house of worship, hoping that they wouldn't stay. So the Pharisee tells this, and then the, then, the, then the tax collector bows before God. He beats his chest, and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisee uh, says nothing, but Jesus says something. Jesus says, uh, the Pharisee is not the one who is justified, but the sinner, right? These both men went to the temple to be justified, to be justified before God. While the Pharisee pled his case... Just like the judge, while the Pharisee pled his case and said, these are the reasons why I've done no wrong. The tax collector said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said it was the tax collector who was justified. Those who aren't humble will be humble. Those who are humble will be exalted, Jesus finishes his parable with. So what about you? We've been asking each week in this series what we're going to do about it. What does prayer look like for you? <clears throat> we all have stories about prayer, good ones and bad ones. I've got a few. Um, once in my life, a few years ago, I met with an older man who told me, actually we had several conversations, he told me he didn't believe in God anymore. And I was intrigued by that. I wanted to know his story. I wanted to know what had happened in his life that made him go from faithful to not faithful, right? I mean, people, there are people in the world who haven't been exposed to God. There are people in the world who have grown up without God. But I take it especially personally when somebody tells me that they once had a faith in God and they don't anymore because that usually means that somebody has hurt them in some way. So I wanted to know what had happened. And he said, well, my wife got cancer. My wife got cancer and we prayed. The pastor came by her bedside. He anointed her with oil. My whole church was praying. They were bringing us meals. Everybody was praying. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed. They told her she had six months to live. She died in six months. After all those prayers, nothing happened. 
The doctors were right. Absolutely nothing changed. So either God doesn't love him and his wife, or God isn't real. Either way, this man wanted to have nothing to do with God. These stories are painful to hear. Most of us have had that situation. Maybe not as profound, but most of us have been in a situation where things didn't go the way we'd like for them to. We may have asked God to do them, to make them happen differently. We have, may have, maybe have asked God to act on our behalf, and it's our perception that he didn't. That, that things didn't go the way we wanted them to. I can't imagine losing a spouse like that, especially after so much faith and prayer. But he sa- tells me that he simply can't have faith in God. If God chooses to save some people but not his wife. What did she ever do wrong? Now, any good theologian can tell you everything wrong with that that theology, but that isn't much consolation to him in that situation. There isn't much consolation to understand that sin still exists in the world and that bad things still happen even to faithful people. For him, it was a challenging point in his life. I've also heard extraordinary stories of miracles. Just last week, uh, I was listening on NPR to an interview of Trevor Noah, who's a comedian and a talk show host. Um, and uh, he, uh, I didn't know anything about him, really, and, uh, and I was really fascinated by his story. Uh, he's from South Africa, and he's from apartheid South Africa, and his mom is black and his dad is white. And if you know anything about apartheid South Africa, you know that, one, that didn't happen. Uh, two, that was highly illegal. In fact, his mom went to prison for it. Uh, and three, he had to choose which parent he was going to be the child of. Now, if he chose to live with his dad, his dad would have to live in the black neighborhoods, the ones segregated for blacks only. If he chose to live with his mom, which is what he did, then he could live with her. As he explained it, you could always downgrade, but you could never upgrade. In fact, uh, the story he was telling was a story about how when he came to America and he was filling out bank forms, and there were all these different options for race, and he asked what one he should put, and the bank teller said, whichever one you want. And he said, you mean I get to pick? You know, in South Africa, he was black because his mom was black, so that was close enough. That meant that he was not able to get a loan. That meant that he was not able to get certain jobs. That meant he wasn't able to go to the certain schools. That meant he was not able to... Remember, this is, this is apartheid South Africa just until a few years ago uh, that this, this horrible segregation was still happening. In fact, he, he told the stories that were fascinating of having to, having to pretend to be a worker with his mom, him and his mom pretending to go be a worker for his dad so they could go visit him. So they would dress up like servants or like maids and go to his apartment just to spend time with him because it would have been illegal for them to fraternize. And his mom was eventually shot through the head, all the way through, in the front, out the back. And she suffered no brain damage. She made a full recovery, and she's as strong as ever. And the reason Trevor was telling that story was the interviewer asked him questions about his faith because he grew up in a deeply religious household. Both his mom and his dad were very religious, but he's not. He doesn't believe in God, and he doesn't have a faith. So he's asked about that, and he explains that his mom is the kind of person who has always taught him to challenge everything, which means that she isn't offended when he challenges her on her faith, and she and he isn't offended when she challenges him back and explains to him why this God is something that's so extraordinary. But he says that there's the one thing he can't argue about, the one thing that he can't explain, the one thing that even though he doesn't believe it, he can't fight it, and that was that gunshot wound. There's simply no explanation. Even the doctors said it was a miracle, and he said he didn't understand how men of science would call it a miracle. There's no such thing as miracles, but darn it, it was a miracle. There's simply no other explanation. Now, amazingly, this this earth-shattering event wasn't enough to change his faith, but it was enough that even he has to admit that something outside of human hands saved his mom's life. I have my own story like that. I have a cousin who, uh, most of you have kids or grandkids. You know how fast things can happen in an instant. 
Uh, my cousin uh, was, was a small child playing with a toy in the front yard. The toy got away, and she ran out in the road. Just like that, a couple of seconds, she got hit by a pickup truck. She was airlifted to Children's Hospital, and my uncle was on the way. Of course, he gets the phone call. He leaves work. He's heading right for the hospital. And he says he felt a moment <clears throat> of the Holy Spirit in his car, and he pulled over to pray. He kind of realized, had this moment of clarity, that there was nothing he could do at the hospital. The most he could do is pray. So he pulls over to pray. What he doesn't know is that in the helicopter, his daughter had been pronounced dead. They'd covered her up. They were done. They were taking a body to the hospital. They had stopped working on her. They were sitting down, and they were doing paperwork. And at some moment, my uncle believes the same moment he was praying. Certainly, there's no evidence to refute that. Her heart starts beating again. People don't just undie. People don't get pronounced dead. And paramedics don't make that mistake. They know when somebody is dead. And she wasn't dead. She's alive. In fact, she's about to have her first child. Uh, but the amazing thing about that story, it was a long recovery of a couple of years, but the amazing thing about that story is, is that I believe in my heart that that was a miracle. I believe that God chose to act on her behalf and to do something that wasn't humanly possible. So how do you kind of balance that? How do you balance stories of miracles, things that had to have happened because of God's hand in the world, with stories where it didn't happen? I mean, the reality is sin is a part of our world. Our world is broken. People do die, including people who die for unjust reasons. Innocent people die because of crime and cancer and disease, and they die because of nothing. Right? I had a colleague, a colleague's brother recently passed away. This brother was an attorney who, who helped me get two of my cousins who were adopted by my aunt and uncle. They, they can't have children of themselves, and they decided that they wanted to adopt kids from high-risk from high risk situations. Both of them were addicted to drugs as they were born. And this attorney, who was the brother of a United Methodist pastor, um, helped him get these kids. And he died on Christmas Day, perfectly healthy, of an embolism, just, just like that. Right? So why do the unjust things happen to good, faithful people? These are the questions that we've been asking for 2,000 years. People have been trying to answer them forever. The, the uh, founding fathers, uh, were uh, some of them were deists. They, were, they had a kind of an interesting variant of Christianity. Thomas Jefferson, for example, is famous for omitting all of the miracles from the Bible. He had his Jefferson Bible, uh, Thomas Jefferson's version of the Bible, which omitted, omitted the miracles and a number of Jesus' sayings, uh, basically because Thomas Jefferson didn't believe in miracles. Thomas Jefferson was a watchwinder. In other words, he believed that God created the universe and leaves it alone. He doesn't touch it. He'll see you when it's over, but he's done for now. He's done his part. Now, the experiences in my life, the experiences in Scripture, tell me that that can't possibly be true. But even so, there are those moments where it seems as though God is just sitting back and letting the world tick on. The reality is, and the hardest reality is, and the most difficult part about this is that there is no easy answer. One of the hardest things that we'll ever do as Christians is admit that we don't have the answer. That sometimes God acts... Sometimes God doesn't. It's not because God loves somebody less or more or somebody is better or worse. It's because sometimes God acts and sometimes God doesn't. Prayer is difficult, though, because we expect God to ask. Jesus even tells us in his parable, expect God to act. And sometimes the healing never comes. Sometimes the miracle doesn't happen. I think part of understanding prayer is understanding that prayer doesn't work in the sense that we think it does. It isn't a coin we stick into a vending machine. What prayer does, how prayer works, is that it is our connection to God. A connection to God that might mean that God intercedes on our behalf. A connection to God that might mean we have the strength to endure a reality that doesn't change. Because our world is broken. 
Our world has always been broken, and our world probably always will be broken until the very end. The brokenness of our world means that this life here was always going to be temporary. It was never going to last forever, not on this side of heaven. The brokenness of our world means that bad things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. In fact, the one thing that's constant, whether you're rich or poor, whether you are well-known or, or nobody knows you at all, whether you're good or bad, whether you're the worst person in the world or the most, uh, most perfect saint that's ever walked the earth, the one true thing is that a bad thing can happen to you. Jesus died an unjust, violent death at the hands of oppressive religious leaders despite being the most perfect example of a human to ever walk the earth. And Jesus did it for extraordinary reasons, but even the bad things couldn't escape Jesus. I think prayer works when we start to understand what God wants from prayer and what it is that we're called to do in prayer. The reality is I could give you a lot of platitudes and specious reasoning about why bad things are actually good things or, or why everything happens for a reason and that sort of thing, so even though those things aren't really, uh, aren't really very well supported in Scripture. Right? The idea that, that everything, including bad, happens for some good reason. Sometimes things are bad. And that's a, that's a reality that we have to admit when we're here on earth. Sorry for being so depressing. But some things are just bad. Some things aren't just great because sin and a broken world are a reality in our life. But I can tell you that what the scriptures tell us, what God tells us, and what the Holy Spirit compels us is to pray. Pray in the good times. Pray in the bad times. Ask for the miracles. Ask for the courage to handle the realities of, of the outcomes. Ask for strength. Ask for wisdom. Praise God for the miracles. Praise God for the strength to endure and handle life when they don't come. Praise God for the good things. Praise God for the bad things. I love the testimony of, uh, of uh, Polly Perrette. If, you, if you've ever watched the show NCIS, she plays Abby. Uh, and she is a uh, she's United Methodist. She's a very, very committed United Methodist. And she attends uh, a UM church. In fact, she, uh, she wouldn't do her scenes on Sunday mornings because she had to go to church, right? So if, uh, if, you're, if uh, we talk about kids having to play sports on Sunday mornings, if actors can get away with it on Sunday morning, I think more of us can get away with it on Sunday morning. Uh, but she tells this story. <clears throat> she has a tattoo, only a real tattoo on her body. The rest are all fake uh, that they put on for the show. But she has one real tattoo, and it's scripture on her finger. And the scripture, I don't remember it exactly. I tried to look it up before the sermon, but I couldn't find the video again. But it basically means give thanks to God in all things. And she said what's so important to her about that is that giving thanks to God in all things means giving thanks to God when things aren't good. It means giving thanks to God for the good in the bad, because there is still bad in the world. So pray. Pray together. Pray at home. Pray in church. Pray at work. Just pray. Pray because God loves you. Pray because God wants to hear from you. Because in prayer, we have an extraordinary connection that simply doesn't exist without a prayer life. Even if prayer doesn't give us everything we want, even if God isn't the vending machine that some people tell us he is, pray. prayer does give us what we need. Pray not because God uh, wants to give us something, but because God loves us and has asked for it. I can't imagine a spiritual life without prayer, and I really, really hope, and my prayer for all of us, my prayer for this whole church, my prayer for each of you, my prayer for myself, is that we would become very committed to our prayer lives, become very passionate about our prayer lives, praying constantly, praying often, and connecting everything we do to prayer. Because the reality is, even though that doesn't mean that we'll get an extra heaping of miracles in our lifetime, it does mean that when the miracles come, when the miracles don't come, we'll have God in the midst of all of it. So that's my prayer for us, is that prayer would become central to what it means to be a member of the United Methodist Church of St. Clair and what it would mean to be who you are and who I am. Amen.